The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside. Welcome to The Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news, stories, and events happening in the world of science and tech. Good evening. I'm your host, Bridget Lepere. This week, we tackle a rather bloody matter, but one that could potentially save your life. Blood is a life source a fluid that transports nourishment from the digestive and endocrine glands throughout the body. It also transports disease-fighting substances to the tissue and also removes waste from the kidneys to all over the body where it gets back to the heart. It gets pumped throughout the body where it's, you know, it's cleansed in the heart and then the process starts all over again and this mind you happens on a daily basis now blood contains living cells meaning blood is alive and unlike medications that are manufactured blood cannot therefore healthy donors are required to to donate life-giving blood to those whose lives depend on now, for a transfusion to be successful, patient and donor blood types must be compatible. Now, we all know that certain blood types such as AB+, can only donate to AB+, plus blood types, and that the O blood type is especially 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 important in emergency rooms because nurses and doctors can transfer this blood almost immediately in emergency situations because they do not necessarily have the luxury of time to determine an accident victim's blood type. Now with this being said, the exciting news is that chemical biologist researchers at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, analyzing bacteria in the human gut have discovered that there are microbes that produce two enzymes that can convert the common type A into a more universally accepted type. And should this process work out as projected, blood specialists suggest it could totally revolutionize blood donation and transfusion completely. Like it, it could just turn it on its head. Now, blood supply shortages happen all over the world. And with a country such as ours with high fertility rates on our roads, it is a great relief to learn that scientists are working on a solution to transform the second most um, common blood type A into a universally uh, accepted blood type such as the O blood type. Now, we bring you all that and more later on on the show and uh, on Unscience this week we look at a rather chilling and rare but extremely distressing phenomenon where patients have been found to be conscious during CPR. Still on the bloody issue we unpack a blood condition called hemochromatosis where one can either genetically inherit it or acquire it through overuse of iron supplements and blood transfusions. This anomaly is the overload of iron in the blood which can lead to a myriad of problems but that's where i will leave it for now on the science um, inside we will get more into these topics later on in the show but right now we go into the news with masibulele lunika in the news making headlines this week two new earth-like planets discovered near tea gardens Tea Garden Star and IBM expands its quantum computing program with VITS as its first partner in Africa. Good evening, I'm Masabulele Luniga. 
A university of Gottingen led research team has discovered two new Earth like planets uh, near one of our closest neighboring stars. The the Tea Garden star, rather, is only about 12.5 light years away from Earth and is one of the smallest known stars. It is only about 2.7 degrees Celsius warm and about 10 times lighter than the Sun. Remarkably, it was only discovered in 2003, even though it is so close to Earth. It has been under scientific observation for about three years, and their data clearly shows the two planets resemble the inner planets of our solar system. Uh, lead author Matthias uh, Zeckermeister of the Institute of Astrophysics, Astrophysics rather, says the planets are slightly heavier than Earth and are located in the habitable zone uh, where water can be found in liquid form. Astronomers, however, suspect that the two planets could be part of a larger solar system, according to co-author Professor Stefan Dresler. Apparently, many stars are surrounded by systems with several planets and so far the Tea Garden star, which is the smallest star whose weight researchers have been able to measure directly. Um, one of the scientific directors of the project, Professor Ansgar Arenas, uh, lauded this discovery as a great success for uh, the Kamenese project. Uh, the new star, the new planets, rather, are the tenth and eleventh discovered uh, by the team. Although planetary uh, systems around similar stars are known, they have all, always uh, been detected using the undiscoverable transit method, uh, where planets have to pass vis- vis- visibly, uh, rather, in front of the star and darken it for a moment. And this only happens in a very small fraction of all planetary systems. And such transits have owned have not yet been found for the new planets however the system is located at a special place from tea garden star where one can see the planets of the solar system passing in front of the sun rainers added that using the transit method inhabitants of the new planets would be able to view the earth the earth uh, should they take up the opportunity uh, the Kamenese project is collabor- is a collaborative effort uh, between organizations In our second story, IBM has announced the expansion of its quantum computing efforts to uh, Africa in a new collaboration with Wits University uh, in South Africa. Uh, the Wits uni- the university rather is the first African partner to the IBM Q network uh, and will be the gateway for academics across South Africa and to the 15 universities who are part of the African Research uh, Universities Alliance ARUA. This is the latest outcome of the joint partnership between IBM Research and VITS, which started in 2016 when IBM opened its second lab in Africa at the, at the VITS University's Chimolohong Digital Innovation Precinct in Johannesburg. To expand the IBM Q network to include VITS will drive innovation in frontier technologies and benefit African-based researchers, academics and students who now have access to decades of quantum computing capabilities at the click of a button, said Professor Zeblon Vilakazi, Vets Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and Postgraduate Affairs. 
quantum computing promises to be able to solve certain problems, rather such as chemical simulations and types of optimization uh, that will be beyond the practical reach of classical machines. IBM first made quantum computers available to the public in May 2016 through its IBM Q Experience Quantum Cloud service and has doubled the power of its quantum computers annually since 2017. IBM also established the IBM ThinkQ, or rather IBM Q Network, a community of Fortune 500 companies, startups, academic institutions, and research labs working with IBM to advance quantum computing and explore practical applications for business and science. Researchers at WITS will investigate the use of quantum computing and machine learning in the fields of cosmology and molecular biology, with a specific focus rather on HIV drug discovery. The teams will also jointly study quantum uh, teleportation, a field pioneered by IBM fellow Charles Bennett. For Africa to remain competitive for the for, for the coming decades, we must get next generation the next generation of students quantum ready, said uh, Dr. Solomon Asefa, Vice President for Emerging Market Solutions and Director at IBM Research Africa. Having access to IBM Q is pivotal for VETS University's cross-disciplinary research program and allows our researchers in quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and in broad natural sciences, including in laser technology, quantum optics, and molecular design, to leverage the next level of discovery research. Uh, it's envisioned that the first results from this collaboration will be forthcoming in the next two years, said Professor Villagazi. Uh, recapping your top stories this hour, two new Earth-like planets discovered near Tea Garden Star and IBM expands its quantum computing program with VITS as its partner, first partner in Africa. Well, thank you so much, Masi. If you don't, uh, if you don't figure Mars to be the planet that you'd like to live on, maybe these two new planets could be a place where you, you and I could live. I'm sorry, I'm not going there. (laughs) Sorry, Uh, but maybe Masi, you'd like to (laughs) to go, go uh, yeah, on on a voyage to one of these planets. Not on a voyage because I'm 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 increasingly getting worried because now we we are having more more problems climate wise, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, you know. plastics in the sea environmentally there's quite a lot of concern with like a lot of damage that people are doing on the earth and maybe with no time we'll need to find a new planet and you'll see Armageddon sooner than late so I think it's a good discovery to actually uh, see which planets we can we can destroy next after we we finish with the earth. <laughs> oh, you're looking forward to destroying <laughs> these new planets. I mean, I mean, we are we are we are doing that definitely. I think we should actually uh, have more um, uh, uh, concern and care for our environment because, I mean, why should we even be looking for other planets in the first place? Oh well, <laughs> we found out what the possibilities could be should scientists be able to convert the blood type A to a universal type. Stay listening. You don't. Don't want to miss this one. This is the science inside. Welcome back. You're still with the science inside. Now we are going into a topic that is going to be uh, going into a number of um, issues concerning blood. And the most outstanding one that caught our attention for this week is the idea that the second most common blood type A can be converted into the most common one, which is the universal one, which is blood type O. And in an attempt, and this is an, an attempt to make um, universally 
accepted blood more accessible, especially in cases where the supply of these of this blood type is um, in short supply. So right now on the line, we have operations testing manager Charles Coleman of the South African National Blood Services, who has been working in the blood transfusion science environment for the past 22 years. His responsibilities include safety and screening of approximately 600,000 units of blood per donation annually. Now that's tons a hell of a lot of blood he holds two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree in biomedical technology Shao, good evening and welcome to the science inside thank you bridget thank you so much for joining us tonight um well Shao, i'm just going to get into it now earlier on we also spoke to um uh, a, a hematology professor and we also asked him about this um, you know about this possibility and then he said you know when he talked about it he said this is an idea and it's you know a great idea but to me it, did, he, it didn't strike me like he was somebody who uh, who who was sure or aware that there's you know you know research he knows there's research going on but if it's something yeah. that is being carrying carried out right now and I'm speaking to you right now because I would like to find out how far are we in South Africa with this research? Uh, in your unit, are you conducting such studies, if any? So currently, South African National Blood Service are not doing research in this of this kind in South Africa, but we are very uh, aware of the research that, that is being done. It's actually the, the conversion of blood types into blood group O through enzymes is actually not a, a new concept. It's actually been first proven as a concept way back in 1982 already by Dr. Jack Goldstein and his team from the Kilgore Research Institute in New York. Sure. Um, they actually converted uh, blood group B um, into blood group O by using enzymes that they extracted from coffee beans at that time. Similarly, they, that that can be done for blood group A, but blood group A is actually a little bit more challenging to do than the initial uh, studies that he done on the blood group B. But uh, currently, yes, there's still a lot of research ongoing. Um, they are... Uh, commercial interest in this. There are companies specializing and trying to look for the solution of this. But like all research, that can take a lot of time. They need to do clinical trials and prove um, that there's no harm to patients and that the enzymes um, convert the, the A or the B blood group or even AB into O effectively and that it's safe for patients to use. And clinical trials for certain um, blood groups have been done, um, but it's still ongoing. Uh, currently, there's not, it's not being done yet for any patients um, by any blood transfusion service. And, and this research, has any of this research been carried in South Africa? No, not as far as I'm aware. Uh, there's no, no research currently like that in South Africa. Okay, and um, from your perspective, something like this, how long 
could it take? I mean, how far are we in, in terms of, you know, the trials being run and, you know, the possibility of it happening? Is it something that could take maybe 10, 20 years or so? Sorry, I lost you there for a while. Okay, I was just saying that this study, this study, um, is it something that is feasible? Is it something that could take us 10 to 20 years or in the next 50 years or something? Uh, it's definitely feasible because it's, the research has been enhanced a lot by by uh, newer, actually uh, newer enzymes that they're deriving from um, bacteria which is a lot more specific and it's a lot more effective um, in uh, actually stripping the sugars off the off the, the red cell surface. So they've made a lot of uh, progress on this research. I think uh, we should watch this space definitely in the next uh, five to ten years probably. Okay, five to ten years is something that I can uh, look forward to. And the eventuality of something like this uh, happening, what would this mean to an organization such as yours and the people that you provide, the kind of services that you provide for? Well, as you said, uh, Black Group O is obviously uh, what they call the universal um, donor. Um, they, most people in South Africa is actually of the blood group O. Mm-hmm. But but the the thing with blood group O is that it's it is higher in demand because you can actually give blood group O to anyone that is blood group A or B or A B. Yes. Um in just uh, and then it, the A B O blood group will be compatible. There are a lot of other blood groups though that you still that still comes into play because A the ABO blood group and the RH are the main blood group systems, but they are they are actually a lot of blood group systems um, and that is in play, and that's why blood always gets bust matched to patients, um, not because there's actually various antibodies that or reactions that can happen. You need to make sure there's compatibility between the product and that you're going to give the patient. Okay, and um, we, um, as I had mentioned, that we also spoke to Professor Mahlangu about something um, within the same uh, category, but uh, just on a different um, note. He also noted that, you know, with um, the assistance of tech, we have been able to manufacture artificial organs such as the heart and the kidney. And by that, I mean, you know, the dialysis machine and the life support machine, but we have never been able to create blood in the lab why have we why do we still struggle with this uh, given the tech that we have well um it is it's partially true it is actually it has actually been done but on the experimental level that you that blood was created or or uh, in a laboratory so so if you look at what he's referring to like organs and that refers to stem cell, stem cell, right, stem cell technology. Yes. And similarly, you can, and it has been done, that uh, stem cells were used to, to actually, if you can call it, reduce red cells in the laboratory. Um, but that is on a 
small scale at this stage is uh, it it is not a commercial application at all and yes it can definitely be something for the future there's a lot of focus still on on that field and stem cell research is one of the biggest research fields probably in the world um, and especially with organs and blood at this point Okay, now still on, on that topic of, you know, manufacturing our own blood, um, could you talk us through other blood um, options or other alternatives? Let's say somebody doesn't want to receive a blood donation for cultural, religious or um, personal reasons. Are there other options of, you know, um, supplementing their blood? Should they need blood in, a, in, in instances where it's an emergency? Um, blood is still blood is an essential medicine and still the gold standard for uh, in the case of blood loss, uh, especially like trauma, uh, where someone loses a lot of blood. Uh, blood substitutes is a field that is a research field on its own, and there are substitutes uh, or substitutes available or in research or that has been tested. There's basically different categories. There's chemical, chemically based uh, blood substitutes, uh, which uh, has limited ability, but can also um, have its own side effects that you have to deal with. And then there's research into hemoglobin-based substitutes where they actually still get the hemoglobin molecule from human origin or from bovine origin. But also they can they can recombinantly uh, manufacture uh, the hemoglobin molecule. Um, that is the second um, substitute field, and then the stem cell derived, as I mentioned, is the third one, uh, which is which is which they are looking at. In terms of it depends it depends what the situation of a patient obviously is. Mm-hmm. The patient is going to go for an operation that is planned. The, doc- the doctor can definitely um, try to uh, preempt that and give the, make sure the patient is in the optimal state in terms of his hemoglobin. And you can also um, make sure um, that maybe the patient, the chance that the patient will get blood is, is minimized. But in case where, as you said, in rapid blood loss or accident or trauma or uh, postpartum hemorrhage or something, that will be uh, substitutes are limited and, and blood will still be the, the main treatment for all of those. Mm, amazing. And, um, well, in South Africa, it is illegal to sell anybody organ or, or blood, but the, the blood that your organization receives or it uh, receives from the, the, the donors, is it sold to private and public hospitals? It's something that I've always, you know, uh, thought of asking. That's, a, that's a, a question we hear a lot or a lot of people ask. Um, and I must add, I must say that actually uh, that blood uh, is not, you're not allowed to charge or sell blood as because blood is actually classified as an organ as well mm-hmm. um, and as you said it's a live product um, but what you want the patient 
yes, the patients do get charged when they receive blood in public and um, and government sector. Um, and what they are charged for is actually the services related to the product and the value add that, that the South African National Blood Service or similar organizations add to the product. Uh, Sandbus, for instance, have more than 2,000 employees. There's blood bags that we have to purchase to get the collections. There's transport and logistics. There's a lot of processing of the blood that ha- happens. Um, we have world-class uh, testing facilities that actually use the best, best tests for HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C that is available in the world. And then further, when the patient needs to receive blood, they need to have a compatibility test prior to issuing them blood. So as you can hear, there's a whole value chain before blood gets to a patient from actually from the donor side right up to the patient. And that is the related services that goes into blood. And that is what that services are recovered from, from patients receiving blood. Okay. And um, my final question for uh, uh, this interview, what kind of challenges um, is your organization facing as far as, you know, testing this blood, ensuring that, you know, the blood receives, um, reaches the, the, end, um, the end user in, um, you know, a, a safe a safe way and that the blood is of good quality and maybe just some of the challenges with uh, the donors themselves? I think uh, there's uh, along the whole value chain there's, there's, a, there's constant uh, evaluation and, and redesign of systems if we see there's, there's shortages of any sort but the challenges I think that the main challenges that we face is that blood is always um, highly, there's always a high demand for blood, and the blood a blood product is not is not something you can shelf for long. Mm-hmm. Um, the expiry dates are relatively short. Um, a red blood cell is in, in in the region of 35 days, which is not that long. Blood platelets, which is a high demand product for someone that's bleeding, has an expiry of five days and. The longest is more longest product shelf life is about a year for plasma that can be frozen. So as you can hear, there's, there's um, de- dealing with products that expire quickly. You always have to have a turnover and get and try to meet the demand. So this balance between supply and demand, I think, is always uh, the, one of the biggest challenges. We also move blood around to have it the most equitable way if we have more blood in, in let's say, the Gauteng region and less blood in Malanga, we will move blood around so that all patients can receive blood um, in an equitable fashion. Um, I think that's uh, part of our challenges, our day-to-day challenges. Further to that, there's still a, I think when we talk about testing, and also on the patient side, I think uh, HIV burden in South Africa is so high, and that uh, that uh, definitely uh, is one of our challenges. Um, from uh, from we 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 have a whole process to ensure that blood is really the safest blood that you can receive. I would 
day in the world almost, which starts from the donor collection side with questioning of the donor and for, for the donor safety itself, but also for the patient safety. And then I think, as I mentioned, we have state-of-the-art testing facilities um, that test for vi- viruses and bacteria and uh, sterile procedures to ensure the products um, of the highest standards. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, those insights. I think it was a really interesting uh, interview and I learned something from um, speaking to you. And that was Operations Testing Manager Charles Coleman from the South African National Blood Services. And he was talking about you know, some of the challenges that they are faced with till today where demand and supply is still um, a burden. And, um, yeah, and we learned that in the next five to ten years, we could see the possibilities of um, a new blood type in a sense that the blood type A will be converted to a universal blood type, which can be uh, accessible to all um, uh, people who or patients who may need the life-saving blood. But next up, we unravel the mysteries behind why some patients who are conscious during CPR may suffer immense pain and trauma in unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. It's time for Unscience, where we look at the strangest side of research and we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time, effort and money on. Today's Unscience was produced by myself. And I'm going to talk about a rare but extremely distressing phenomenon. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Well, as I said, I'm going to be speaking about a really chilling but rare and extremely distressing phenomenon. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know if that sounds exciting or scary. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. But it's about <laughs> patients being conscious during CPR. Wow. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah, so new research by Dr. Rune Langsgaard and her team was presented at the Euro Euthanese anesthesia pardon me congress in copenhagen denmark and this was last year to raise awareness about a rare but extremely distressing phenomenon where patients were being resuscitated during cardiac arrest that can be good but how is that even possible well that's a good enough question to ask but um while Awareness during cardiopulmonary resuscitation is an extremely rare event. It has been reported in medical literature. Reported in medical literature, you said. Um, Have there been any recent cases? Well, the case of a 69-year-old male who was admitted to hospital after suffering symptoms of indigestion for three days was investigated. He reported feeling breathless a few hours before arrival with no any other complaints but during admission he experienced a short period of tachycardia uh, that is rapid heart rate followed by cardiac arrest so medical staff immediately of course began performing cpr in the form of chest compressions and the provision of oxygen through a mask 
And by the time the cardiac resuscitation team arrived, the patient had blood oxygen levels of 100% and a high level of awareness with open eyes and movement of the head and the limbs. No, God, please, no, 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 no! Gosh, what happened next? Well, regular checks were made to see if the patient's heart had begun to beat, but these showed no rhythm and no noticeable movement of the heart was observed during the multiple ultrasound echocardiograms. The patient was intubated to ensure a a clear airway and epiphrine um, epiphrine is the adrenaline and it was given every three to five minutes in an attempt to restore a pulse and spontaneous blood circulation but after an hour of treatment an ultrasound scan of the region around the heart was performed which raised suspicion of aortic dissection so aortic dissection is a serious and usually fatal condition in which the inner and outer layers of the large artery disintegrate as blood is being forced between those arteries ouch uh, that sounds painful i mean um so that means he died right yes because despite their best efforts to save the man's life the man died later and uh, an autopsy indicated that he had actually suffered a complete aortic dissection the researchers later concluded that the high level of patient awareness plus oxygen saturation and arterial gas being almost within the normal range throughout the 90 minutes of um, the treatment indicated that peripheral and cerebral blood flow was good and the chest compressions compressions rather were highly effective they also noted that even though the patient had a pure prognosis the termination of CPR 90 minutes later raised ethical questions among the team members because the individual was conscious at the time. Creepy, creepy if you ask me. And I mean, what, what a per- terrible uh, and painf- painful way to, to die. Yep, a previous study from 2014 showed that survivors of cardiac arrest experience a range of cognitive issues as well, with 2% exhibiting full awareness, which can turn um, lead to post-traumatic disorder, uh, stress disorder, I mean. And of course, regardless of whether or not the person survives, awareness during CPR would be extremely traumatic up to the moment of death should the person die. Oh, and and but uh, what are they going to do about this uh, now that they have learned that you know this is highly possible even though it is deemed to be rare? Well, Longscarf added that they needed to pay further attention and research on the a- area of sedation during CPR because of. Most of the times, medical profession, professionals do not attend to the pain at the moment of performing the CPR. And they are not aware that they might be causing pain while doing CPR because chances are that patients are fully conscious. Well, that was definitely extremely distressing uh, and rare phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, very chilling, I must say. But yes. that was unusual, unlikely, unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the science inside. 
Welcome back to the Science Inside. And if you have just joined us, we are in the second half of the show and we are going to unpack hemochromatosis, which is the opposite of another blood condition called anemia. This condition is an eye is um an overload of iron in the body. The overexcess of iron, something which can be inherited, uh, so meaning it runs in your genes, and it can be acquired through receiving multiple blood transfusions, taking iron shots or injections, or just by simply consuming high levels of iron supplement uh, tablets or injections or something like that. Some of the genetic disorders that result in iron overload, which are hereditary, hereditary uh, hemochromatosis are the African iron overload, overload known as sickle cell disease X-linked side roboblastic anemia. So to look closely at this subject, we spoke to Professor Johnny Mathangu, who is a head of school at, uh, of pathology and professor of hematology here at WITS. He's also the director of the World Federation of Hemophilia International, Hemophilia Training Center in Johannesburg, as well as the director of Bleeding Disorders Unit and Clinical Hematology Service at Charlotte Matreke Hospital. And Masibulele Lunika has more on the story. A lot of people out there are quite familiar with anemia, commonly caused by iron deficiency in the blood and living affected individuals tired and short of breath. Joni N. Matlangu, professor on hematology and clinical hematologist at the Charlotte Maclake Johannesburg Academic Hospital and the head of School of Pathology at the University of the Witwatersrand and National Health Laboratory Service, says much least commonly known is the other side of anemia, where one experiences excess amounts of iron in their body which can also be quite dangerous. A lack of hemoglobin, a red protein responsible for transporting oxygen in the blood, is also quite responsible for the causes, according to Professor Mathangu. He explains further and what the opposite of anemia is and what it means. Iron and hemoglobin are not the same. You need iron to form the hemoglobin. So, so iron is a component of the hemoglobin. If you've got deficiency of iron... Logically, that will lead to deficiency of the hemoglobin, that will lead to anemia. If you have an excess of iron, which is the other spectrum that you are referring to, strictly speaking, it shouldn't be called anemia. It's actually called polycythemia. And um, so the condition is uncommon, but um, it does exist where, uh, for a variety of reasons, the body uh, seems to be keeping the iron uh, in the body, um, uh, resulting in uh, an excess amount of iron forming an increased amount of hemoglobin and therefore your hemoglobin goes up. Hemochromatosis is slightly different. The opposite of anemia is polycythemia, whereas hemochromatosis is um, the natural tendency of the body to retain iron. And the body then finds its use. And, and in the process of finding its use, it increases the hemoglobin. So it's slightly different. And there are various causes of uh, hemochromatosis. Again, you know, you know, some of those causes can be uh, genetic. Um, there is um, a familial form of hemochromatosis in which generations in the family will tend to have the hemochromatosis. Or you can actually have an acquired form. In fact, in the olden days when we used to use iron pots, 
Um, it used to be a fairly common reason why people have got more iron than they need. According to him, the same iron found in iron pots is actually the same as the one found in the blood. It is exactly the same. I mean, obviously, it's not as raw as you are thinking. But um, ultimately, in the olden days, when generations of the generations used to use the iron pots, um, uh, the natural adaptation would be for the body to start accumulating the iron, which is leaching out of the iron pots. Nowadays, it's very uncommon. It used to, it used to be called Bantu siderosis. That was the official name for it. He explains more on the causes of iron excess in your body. There are various causes for it, um, both congenital, in other words, uh, someone is born with it, or acquired uh, conditions. Some of the more common acquired conditions would include, for example, uh, someone with a lung problem, the so-called COPD, the chronic pulmonary um, condition in which um, the body senses that you are actually lacking the oxygen. So in response to that, it starts forming more and more hemoglobin. And that, in fact, results in an increase in the hemoglobin level, um, which is the one mechanism by which you, you form polycythemia. The other acquired conditions, in fact, uh, tend to be associated with malignancies. In general, polycythemia vera is one of the so-called myeloproliferative disorders in which you produce a little bit more than what you need in your body. According to the professor, the body has a natural way of keeping the balance. He elaborates. Normally, there is a balance in the body. Um, we're talking here about extremes, uh, both ways, whether the, the extreme of you not having enough iron or the extreme of accumulating too much iron. So, so, so both of those represent pathological conditions. In under normal physiological conditions, there is a balance in the body and there are a number of enzymes with fancy names that allow the body to only absorb the amount of iron that it needs. And if it is getting excess iron, it's able to get rid of it. And that balance is called iron metabolism or iron homeostasis. Um, when you get anemia, in fact, that homeostasis has now been in, in balanced um, by uh, the fact that the mechanism that is natural, that is physiological, is normal coping. And the same with excess iron. Uh, the mechanism stops uh, actually protecting the individual. In fact, you start uh, having more iron than what you need. Yeah. The body has a way of getting rid of the excess iron. In terms of treatment and preventative measures, he says there are a few ways, all depending on how the condition started or the underlying reason. It depends on the underlying cause. Let's start with iron deficiency. Now, I mentioned three mechanisms by which you get to be iron deficient. If the underlying cause is that you do not have iron in your body and therefore you're unable to form hemoglobin and therefore you get anemic, just giving you iron will correct that state. So, so the one scenario where in fact that is very common is when you've got excessive blood loss. When you lose blood, you lose the hemoglobin together with the iron that it carries. So it is the iron replacement that changes that scenario.
The second scenario is when you are breaking down the cells, the red cells, uh, in the process called hemolysis. In that scenario, um, in fact, you're not losing iron, actually, because if you're breaking down and the breakdown happens in the body, in what you call intravascular hemolysis, so the iron that you release from the broken down red cells is actually recirculated in the body. So you don't become iron deficient. In fact, there is no need for you, if you're having a hemolytic process, to have iron supplementation. And there's a third scenario when you're actually losing blood. When you're losing blood, you lose red cells which have iron and um, depending on how quick or slow the process is, if it is an acute blood loss, because hemoglobin is important in supplying oxygen to the the vital organs such as the brain, etc. The best way to replace that blood loss is to get a transfusion. And I'm sure you'll have a show about um, the importance of uh, donation and blood transfusion. But that is only limited to scenarios where you've got an acute blood loss. If you've got a chronic blood loss, you can transfuse, but we prefer that, in fact, we identify the underlying cause. If the underlying cause is iron deficiency, we normally just give you the iron supplementation without actually giving you the transfusion. That is the one extreme. That is the management of the deficiency. The management of the excess iron is a little bit of a tricky one. Um, you you have to actually uh, get into the body what you call iron chelators. These are substances that have an affinity for iron and they bind iron. And as a result of that binding, in fact, they make it unavailable for it to be deposited in various organs. Iron is very toxic. So if it gets deposited in the heart, in the kidneys, or anywhere in the body, wherever it's deposited, in fact, that organ gets damaged. So we use iron chelators to remove the iron. Um, And that is the way we treat the excess iron, the hemochromatosis. By and large, any healthy individual uh, by healthy we mean relatively free of disease um, should not have anemia and in in that scenario in fact there's nothing to worry in fact you don't need to do anything because the body regulates your hemoglobin automatically without you actually having to put any effort into it once you go into a pathological state where uh, you are sick for whatever reason um, your best bet would be check your hemoglobin quite early and and in fact correct it quite early the professor further explains in terms of the prevalence of hemochromatosis as opposed to anemia anemia is 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 very prevalent it's very common just to give you a piece of useless statistics if you took the, sub, uh, the, the the global population, I think it's about 7.2 or 7.4 at the moment, billion uh, people around um, the world, um, about 30% of that actually are anemic. And a significant proportion of that 30%, I would say in excess of 70%, would have iron deficiency anemia. So iron deficiency anemia is the commonest cause of anemia in the world.
Um, so South Africa being part of the world uh, certainly will, will, will have the same problem that the rest of the world has. Um, you know, uh, polycythemia and the hemochromatosis are less common. Uh, in fact, the frequency of polycythemia and hemochromatosis is sometimes so low that people even forget that they do exist. But we do have individuals that accumulate excess iron and that needs to be managed, but it's not, the numbers are not the same. Um, I mean, if you take, for example, the ward upstairs, which I run, um, at any given time, we've got between five and, and ten people who come to us because of anemia. Uh, nothing else, just they're uh, feeling tired and check their hemoglobin, their hemoglobin is very low. Lastly, Professor Mashangu briefly describes the process of detecting these conditions and how the blood is tested to when it is transfused. Diagnosis is usually very objective. You measure your hemoglobin with one of the machines um, and your hemoglobin is low. Um, then, um, and you need to actually be helped. In other words, bring that hemoglobin up. So we'll have to take your blood sample, uh, we send it to the blood bank. At the blood bank, they do cross-match. They want to find a unit of blood that is compatible with your blood. Um, and once they've identified that unit of blood, then they dispatch it to be given to you. So in the ward or wherever you are, um, you then receive that blood through a drip. That's the process that you follow. It's a very simple cross-matching, which is then followed by the infusion. That was it for the story. Thanks to Professor Mashlangu for the insightful interview. I'm Masibulele Luniga. This is the Science Inside. And so, as the words of Mark Twain go, I was gratified to be able to answer promptly, and I did. I said, I didn't know. But hey, guess what? Now you know. I believe this show has been particularly eye-opening and I hope that we have empowered you with some information on how you can possibly save your life or another person's life with just some of the information that was shared on the show. But that is it for this week. A big thank you to all of our guests who were featured on tonight's show, including Professor Johnny Matlangu and Charles Coleman. Our team behind the scenes is Masibulele Lunika and tech is, of course, Gudrano Serrano. You can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science. The Science Inside is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Cheers. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.